All right, it's time to open your Bibles. Let's go to Romans 3. We've spent two weeks in chapter 2. We're going to be in Romans 3 today. Our passage next week is not going to be in Romans. We're going to take, uh, we're planning currently to take a six-week break. I say currently because plans are always subject to change. So we're going to take a six-week break from Romans, and we are going to have a series called Your Kingdom Come. And in this series, we will be learning how it is that we are to live between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. These four weeks before Christmas are uh, traditionally known as Advent. So we're going to really just look at the, the, the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, that is. And we're going to be learning how it is that we are to wait for God because he's not here yet. So how do we wait for God? And so that's what we will be doing these next six weeks. We will be in Matthew 6, verses 5 through 9 next week. So Romans 3, 1 through 8. I will tell you that if you do not keep in mind what we've learned the last two weeks, this passage is just going to frustrate you. So let's recap. Just a bit. And, and this could be very good and valid, helpful discussion at your tables to kind of review what happened last week, if you like. That's up to y'all. Well, God had, Paul spent a lot of time in Romans chapter 2 helping Jewish people who were the chosen people of God who had so many privileges and so much. Just they, they, God showed them so much about himself that he did not show the other nations. And he chose them for specific and particular purposes that he didn't choose others for. But these Jews, they were very religious and they knew that they, there was a special call on their life. And because of that, they, 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 they stepped into some pride. And it's almost as if to say that they kind of thought that God chose them because they were so great. Even though there's a number of places in the Old Testament where God said, I didn't choose you because you were great. I chose you because I chose you. And so God had given them his law. God had given him his commands. And there were many Jews who thought, we have the law of God. And because of that, we're awesome. We are going to be right with God. We have a relationship with God. And they didn't realize that it takes more than just having the law to belong to God, but that obedience is actually required. And Paul very clearly pointed out last week that they haven't obeyed and that that causes a problem, that just possessing the command of God is not enough for them to get right with God. Well, they had a second thing that they were mighty proud of, and that was the outward sign of circumcision. Circumcision was designed to be pointing to something else. Like the law actually points you to Jesus Christ, and they they missed the Jesus part. They missed the future coming Messiah part. Their hope was in the law and not in the Messiah. Well, circumcision, they made it all about a surgery that you did on a boy when you were eight, when the boy was eight years old. And they missed the purpose of this sign of circumcision. And the sign of it was to point to something that would be to come. And that would be the circumcision of the heart. See, the Jews were so focused on the 
outward appearance of things. Jews were so focused on the physical and what you could see and not the inward. They missed the purpose of the law. They missed the purpose of circumcision. And because of that, um, Paul had to correct some things. In chapter 1, he said the Gentile nations had rejected God and they were far from God and God's wrath was upon them. Well, then in chapter 2, God says very clearly, you Jews are no better off. You religious people are no better off than those Gentiles are. And what you think you have going for you doesn't do it for you. But that something else is needed. So in our passage today, in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Paul is going to teach, or, or Paul is going to have this conversation with several possible responses to what he wrote in chapter 2. You know, have you ever read anything and you're like, I got something to say about that. Okay, we do that, right? I mean, I do that with news headlines. I do that with all kinds of stuff. I do that with the Bible occasionally. I read it and I'm like, huh, I got to readjust my thinking. I've got some questions based on what I read. And so in this passage today, Paul is going to field several different objections and questions. And they're, from question to question, they're of a different nature. You know, none of these questions are the same. And Paul does something a little bit annoying that Jesus did at times, and that is he would answer a question with a question. So in this eight, for these eight verses, there's eight questions. But some of those questions are Paul's answer to the question that, you know, his imaginary friend who he was having the imaginary conversation with would have brought up. So with all that being said, follow along with me as I read Romans 3, 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if, through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So take four or five minutes. Read this a number of times to yourself, and when the time's right, your table leader will begin the discussion. Okay. So eight verses, eight questions. Let's start at verse one. The question is asked, in light of everything that Paul just told them in chapter two, what advantage has the Jew? Or, what is the value of circumcision? Paul says, so simply, so plainly, much in every way. As I read that, I thought, okay, he's getting ready to give a a long list of, of reasons, a long list of answers. But 
he only gives one answer to that question. At least in chapter 3. When you get to Romans 9, he gives more. He asks the question again. But what is the value of circumcision? What good is it to be a Jew instead of a Gentile? He says much in every way. And he gives us one example. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So as I shared earlier, they thought they were the privileged and chosen people. And they were. But that didn't mean what they made it out to mean. The law doesn't save you and uncircumcised Gentiles are getting saved before you, but there are still advantages. God spoke to the Jewish people in a way that he did not speak to the other nations. And Paul uses the word, he gave to you the oracles of God. We don't use that word very often. That word is not found in the Bible very often. But where it is found, it is referring specifically to the very words of God. So we can think about that in like the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. We can think about that as the Ten Commandments. We can think about it as God sending prophets in the Old Testament. You know, from time to time he'd send prophets. And sometimes there were long seasons where there were a lot of prophets bringing the word of God to the people. And so that was a huge advantage because the people knew what was on the mind of God. They knew what God was thinking. They knew what God required. They knew what God had done. They knew what he wanted. They knew about his heart and his mind and all of these things. And he's saying, while the law and circumcision doesn't save anyone, there is great value in having the words of God and knowing what it is that God has said. But he doesn't elaborate on that question very much beyond that. And boom, he moves on very quickly. We get to verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify or cancel out the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So people didn't believe and obey the oracle that God had given them. People didn't do what God said. And in many ways, they went on to live their life as if God had said nothing at all. And this was just one more way of saying that the Jews were just like the Gentiles. So one may see the faithlessness of the Jews. One may see their hypocrisy. One may see their disobedience. And that makes them think, well, the Jewish God, he can't be trusted. Works very much the same way today in our world, right? You know, if a church is full of a bunch of awful, nasty, rotten people and sin is running amok, then the community looks at that church and they think, wow, they're no better off than I am. Actually, I'm doing better than they are. Why would I want to be a part of that group of people? And why would I want to have to do anything with their God? So it's as if the people that Paul is speaking to, when, when, when we read this question, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? When Paul asks that question, it's as if the people that Paul is speaking to, they're trying to follow his thought process. See, they're on this journey. You know, they they got this Romans 2 idea in their head. They heard what Paul had to say. And now they've got a road and a path ahead of them where they have to make some adjustments in what they think. And they have questions. There were things that they had assumed 
about life and about God. There were conclusions that they had come to based on their theology, based on what they had been taught. And now their theology is changing and they have to step back and recalibrate. You know, poor old Jewish man is 50 years old and he says, everyone has always taught me and everything I've always heard has just talked about just how special we are and how good and great and wonderful we are and how we're on our way to God. And, and like that big idea is wrong. They thought they had a sturdy foundation underneath them and then they realized that that foundation is a lie and they have to step back and recalibrate. I would guess it would be a little bit similar to, not, not completely like it by any means, but it would be like a Muslim person converting to Christ. You know, Muslims believe certain things about Jesus. They believe he was a great man, but they've got the most important things wrong. And so when a Muslim makes that conversion, when he hears the gospel, when, when she hears the gospel, when they believe the gospel, they have to step back and rethink the biggest, most important questions about life. See, they had wrongly thought that being a Jew made them right with God, and it did not. So, he answers his own question in verse 4 by saying, By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Just in case you don't know what that means, it means God's always right. He always tells the truth, and we're not like him. We get it right sometimes, and we tell the truth sometimes. But we're not consistent in this. And when I say we, I'm talking about the human nature that lives and exists within all of us. And so, we've got these two questions. What advantage is there? What if someone unfaithful? Does that make God like us? You know, it would kind of be like someone saying, does this mean that God's plan does not work? You know, the person who asked that question, particularly the question in verse 3, does this mean that God's plan does not work? You know, if God's people messed up, that must mean that God messed up. No, it doesn't mean that God's plan didn't work. It means that you didn't understand the plan. How many of y'all ever been in that spot? Amen. Does this mean that God was dishonest or that he somehow misled you? No, it just means that you didn't understand the plan. Since God's people weren't faithful, then God must not be faithful, right? No, you didn't understand the plan. I submit to you the idea that many of our problems, majority, probably all of our problems, is because we didn't understand something. Another answer to this question could easily be, you don't understand how sinful people are. And the reason that the Jewish person who heard Paul in chapter 2 is responding this way is because they have an overinflated view of the goodness of man. Was going back and forth with an unbeliever who I used to know very well many years ago, and, and I've spent some time with her and her family over the last few years, a couple times, and think a whole lot of this person. But this person is looking within. And is a wonderful person in many ways. <laughs> There's a lot I like about this person. But all of this person's goodness comes from within. And their understanding of the nature of man is completely opposite of everything that God is teaching us here in the book 
of Romans. And we live in a world today where people think that we are just the most, the, the greatest thing ever. And we, we think that there is an inherent goodness in people. We believe that our nature is good. And the Bible says, no, we are sinful to the core and everything inside of us is twisted until Jesus comes in and makes us new. And even after he does that, we still get some things wrong, right? So this person, I think in verse three, we could say they're frustrated with God. Whenever we're frustrated with God, I tell you, it is not God's fault. It is our fault. Have you ever felt like God didn't provide for you while you were being stingy with your money and had this idea that it was all yours? Have you ever felt like, you know, God's not on top of things because things aren't going well at work for you? Now, the truth is, you know, things going bad at work might not have anything to do with you. That might all be because of somebody else. But ask yourself this question. Do you love your coworker? Do you treat other people with kindness and respect? While you're at work, are you following the basic commands of God? Or do you live like the Jews were doing without regard to certain commands that they did not like? See, that, that command that Jesus gave to love your neighbor as yourself, you know, your coworker who doesn't live right beside you is still your neighbor, Right? Okay, you don't have to live beside someone for them to be your neighbor. But God's command applies to them to love them. So, you know, we feel entitled to things going well for us, don't we? We feel entitled to that, you know, so many people, you know, they won't come out and say this, but they feel like God owes them something. And when things don't get our way, we blame God, we look at God, and we don't like how God is doing things, so surely He must be doing something wrong. And we fail to see or take responsibility for our part in the matter with whatever's broke, with whatever it is that's not going the way that it should. See, our depraved human nature, we have this default mode. It is automatic for us to trust or to accuse God. And, and I'm not speaking of every single person here. I'm just speaking of human nature in general, but we project blame on God and we fail to take responsibility for our own actions. Humans by nature, you all, we have a really hard time talking about our own sin, but we love to point out God's, right? And we have this foolish, stupid idea that God has actually messed something up or made a mistake or sinned, but he's holy and perfect in every way. If you've ever thought that God messed something up, I tell you, he didn't. He did not understand his plan. And here, in Romans 3, as the second question is being asked, people certainly didn't understand the plan. Now, I've had times in my life where something that I believed about God uh, proved to be not true. I remember as a teenager, I had this idea that if I did not confess every single sin that I committed and I died, then I would not be in heaven when I died because I forgot that one thing. But then, a man from this church, when I was 17 years old, taught me that that's not how the forgiveness of God works. But when God forgives your sin, 
He doesn't just wipe away the sin in the past that you've already committed, but that, that forgiveness is for past sin, present sin, and future sin. Now, some would say, well, does that mean you can just go on sinning? If you want to know how that works, then go ahead and read Romans 6. Paul gets to that shortly. But no, it doesn't mean that. What that does for us is it helps us see that Jesus is holding on to us. And it helps us to see that even if we're not perfect, he still welcomes us into his family. And as I saw that the forgiveness of God was great and as incredible as as it was, as, as my view, as I repented of that deficient, immature view, you know, all of us have immature theology. All of us, you know, the things we believe about God, there's areas where all of us need to grow up, your pastor included, every single one of us, okay? But as my view of God's forgiveness became more whole, became more complete, I didn't have to live my life with paranoia thinking, what if I die young and I'm not ready? I can say, no, Jesus is my Savior, and He has saved me completely from all sin. And because I had that confidence, I wasn't trying to obey God so that I wouldn't go to hell. I was obeying God because I loved God. I was obeying God because He was so awesome. What He had done for me was so much greater than what I had previously understood. So I think this person in verses 3 and 4, they've got a deficient view of God. No doubt. And Paul is trying to bring some completeness to it. He's trying to bring some wholeness to it. He's trying to get them to see who God really is. And so he wraps up verse 4 by going back to the Old Testament. Did y'all know that the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together perfectly every single time? They are not opposed to one another, but they fit together perfectly. And Paul was a master at taking something from the Old Testament and using it as an example for what he was saying. And here at the end of verse 4, when he says, As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What he's saying, he's going back to David. David was a man of God, but he saw a beautiful woman. He slept with her and then he killed her husband. And then God confronted him for what he did. He did an awful thing. He did a horrible thing. Okay? And, and there was great judgment that came upon him in that life, but he repented of what he did. And in Psalm 51, where he quoted this, where Paul quotes this from, David says, you are justified in your words and you prevail when you are judged. David understood that God was right to judge the unfaithful. David understood that God was good in his judgment. And David also understood that there's no appeal process with God. You know, in our American legal system, there is an appeal process. And that's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. And, you know, there's some problems with it. There's no doubt about that. But with God, there's no appeal process. But you know what? There doesn't need to be because he gets it right. Not most of the time, but every single time. So we get to verse 5. And the nature of the questions that Paul is asking shifts a bit. It changes a bit. It almost seems like with what's to come that the people who would say things like this are just trying to wiggle out of judgment day. They're trying to escape God's gaze. They're trying to not have to deal with the consequences of their actions. And their questions are becoming rather ridiculous. And Paul even says that at the end of verse 5. He says, I'm speaking in a human way. But verse 5 says, 
If our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. So that right there at the end, it serves the purpose, I think, of showing us that Paul thinks this is a more ridiculous objection or question. You know, those first questions in verses 1 through 4 were, were someone who, like many of us, were genuinely seeking and looking for God and trying to figure it out. You know, we all have seasons where we have to do that. But this question is of a different nature. So, I think as I studied this, the biggest question I had is how does our unrighteousness serve to show the righteousness of God? It was asked at our table, is that true? Does our unrighteousness, does the sin in our life show the righteousness of God? And the answer to that question is yes, it does. Now we all know that when we live obedient to God, that shows the righteousness of God, right? But did you know that even in our unrighteousness, that that can show the righteousness of God, particularly when God judges us. Now, when I say when God judges us, I'm speaking of the judgment and the discipline of God in this life. I'm talking about, you know, if, if you sow the wrong seeds, you're going to reap rough and difficult things. That's what I'm talking about. But also on judgment day. Did you know that when God judges sinners at the end, when God casts them into an eternal lake of burning fire that we call hell, did you know that when God does that, that is going to show God's righteous judgment? That's going to show the goodness of God. Him casting people into eternal torment forever and ever shows the goodness of God because it shows how severely he treats evil. If he was flippant about evil, would he be a good God? If he was like, nah, I'm just going to let that one slide. You know, sometimes as a parent, I let things slide. And I've done that enough to realize that that's not a good idea. It doesn't train your children well. You know, and I am an imperfect father. And I am inconsistent. And I let things slide sometime. And then I have to deal with the, the consequences of that. But our God, our Father in heaven, he is a perfect father in every way. And he does not let sin slide. But he deals with it quickly, justly. And severely to all those who do not repent. So. It's like the people who would ask this question in verse five are saying, God is going to show how righteous he is when he judges me. And if I wasn't such a bad sinner, then God wouldn't have the chance to do that. So I'm doing a really good thing for God because God's going to be able to. To show his judgment. But then they try to wiggle out of that judgment by saying, since I'm doing God a favor, he shouldn't judge me. And that is a, a circular argument for one thing that doesn't even make sense because you're pulling out part. If God's not going to judge you, then you aren't showing his righteousness. So the argument just breaks down. It fails so quickly. In verse 6, Paul says that by no means. He's already said by no means one time. Here he says it a second time. In the Greek, that phrase by no means is the strongest possible language that someone could use. And Paul uses it a number of times in Romans, including Romans 6, when they said, if God forgives me of everything, shouldn't I just keep sinning? By no means. He says it over and over and over again. 
By no means. And he's saying it very passionately. The question follows, how could God judge the world? If your sin made God look so good that he couldn't judge you, then certainly he wouldn't, shouldn't judge anyone. And I say to anyone who would say such a dumb thing as that, stop trying to wiggle out of the judgment of God. You will not escape. You will have your day in court. We get to a final set of questions in verse 7. And, and I think by the time we get to verse 7 and 8, Paul's just kind of done. He's just kind of fed up. He says in verse 7, If through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? The objections just get dumber and dumber. My sin is making God look good. I'm doing him such a great favor here. He should just let me keep making him look very, very good. You all, God's calling on us is not to invent new ways to please him. God's calling on us is not to try to reinvent the wheel that he invented a long time ago that works just fine. God's calling on us, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, he says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Why do I bring in the glory of God here? Because Paul does. In verse 7, the, the ridiculous person is saying, if I'm bringing glory to God through my lie, then I shouldn't be condemned. So the person who brings this objection rightly understands that the glory of God is important and that God cares deeply about his glory and that God has called us to glorify him. But to try to glorify him by sinning is not the way to do it. But Paul says in everything you do, do it all for the glory of God. I love how the Westminster Catechism opens up. It says, what is the chief end of man? The answer to that as man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we bring glory and honor and praise to God. And we do that by enjoying him. That's just one of many ways. But what does the word glorify mean? It means to ascribe or give honor to someone. It means to set someone apart as special or holy. It means to acknowledge their excellence. It means to render homage to them. It means to adore them. It means to magnify them, to lift them, their name on high, to exalt them. It means to worship them. And God has not called us to invent new ways to worship him. But we must realize that he is God and that we are not, and that God has called us to love and obey him. There at the end of verse 7, Another question. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? That answer is really easy, you all. God calls him like he sees him. God calls him like he sees him. He is not like us. And I've already said that today. If we look at human history, we have a track record of treating people like animals. That's happened all throughout history. That has happened that is happening in other nations currently in a horrible way. And I'll say there's even little pockets, little places, little communities, little neighborhoods here and there, even in our own nation where people are being treated like animals today. God calls them like he sees them. We live in a world where we treat criminals like heroes. We live in a world where the, the most powerful people are calling good evil and they're calling evil good. We're living in a world where people, precious, wonderful people who are made in the image of God, are being thrown in the trash can because they haven't been born yet. You all, we live in a wicked, nasty, and horrible world. 
And it is good that God condemns sin. He treats sinners as they are to be treated. And he brings condemnation upon them. He is not like us. He treats the guilty as if they're guilty. He treats the innocent as if they are innocent. And if he did it any other way, he would not be good. And he would not be God. Someone, the same person actually that I referenced earlier, told me this week that they believe in karma. So you treat someone wrong, then you're just, it's going to come back to you in this life. The word karma is not a biblical word. It should have absolutely no place in our faith. Its origins are from other religions that we have very little to nothing in common with. But the Bible does say you reap what you sow. And that is a biblical idea. But I want to tell you that that's not the only thing that judgment is. You are not going to come back as a rodent in another life because you dishonored God in this life. And also judgment is something that doesn't only happen in this life, but it's going to happen on a day in the future. In Romans 14, Paul says, We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, and each of us will give an account of himself to God. Hebrews 10 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that to face the judgment. Matthew 16 says that Jesus is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. You all, this idea of final judgment is not something that is popular in our world today. But there will be a day when God separates the sheep to one side and the goats to the other. There will be a day when he casts people into hell and he says, come on in, my good and faithful servant. That division will take place. That justice will be done. That gavel will come down and the trial is over and you have to deal with the fate of the verdict that has been determined for you. So I ask you, Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for that day? And how do you get ready for that day? Because you have sinned and you know it. We all know that. Let's wrap up with verse 8 before I answer that question. Why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? Paul doesn't even answer that question, you all. He says that some people are saying that we say that, but we don't. But he's, he says it's good and right that anyone who would think this way is condemned. That is Paul's way of very kindly and appropriately saying, go to hell. <laughs> okay, that is the closest thing I've ever heard to anyone in the Bible saying such a thing. Now, obviously, when you look at what Paul wrote in other places of the Bible, he doesn't want that to happen. But he is saying that those people are going to get what they deserve. You all, when we don't get the most important things right, we come to some crazy conclusions. And these people, particularly in the last four verses of our passage, they have major foundational beliefs that are all wrong. And because of that, they're thinking and doing some crazy stuff. So the Jews, they had some wrong ideas about how they could be made right with God. Look ahead at verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. 
For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. The Jew was thinking, you know, hey, the rules don't help me, so what do I do? You know, they spent their whole life thinking, I was born into the right family, I was born into the right country. Man, how privileged and blessed am I to to be a part of this. And yeah, that's true, but it doesn't save them. So how can we be saved? How is it that we can be right with God? Is it by keeping the law? No, it's not, because you've already failed that. Is it by circumcision or by getting baptized or by being a church member? No, it's not. That does not save. But look in Romans 3.21. Paul tells them how they are to be made right with God. It is, he says, now the righteousness of God has been manifested. That means to be revealed. The righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. How do we get right with God? It's by faith in Jesus. You all, we can't get back right with God by cleaning up our act. Y'all, we don't have what we need to be able to get right with God. But God, in his great love, he knew that. He saw that. He understood our condition. So instead of God just casting us aside and sending us to hell forever, as he could have done, and he would have been right to do that and still good instead of doing that, he did something wonderful. And he sent the Savior He sent his own son. He sent the one that we needed. He sent somebody who could do what we couldn't do. Y'all know his name. His name is Jesus. He's wiped away our sin. He became a criminal when we were the criminal. Everything that he earned, he forfeited. And he gave us the blessing. He gave us the reward. And everything that we earned, he took that from us. And he took it on himself. Out of his great and incredible love for us. We call this the good news. We call this the gospel. How do you get this? You believe in Jesus Christ. You trust him by faith. Calling on his name. And when you do that. You have the righteousness of God. And you all it's so free. It's not something you can work for. You don't have to save up your money to get it. You ask for it. You believe in Jesus. Say Lord I need you. And he saves. And he doesn't play favorites. But he saves Everyone who calls on his name in faith. You all, Jesus is awesome. Let's pray.